continue uh, our Lenten series this morning uh, where we've been talking about the desert. And so uh, I'm going to turn it over to Joel Looney. Crickets. <laughs> Appreciate that, y'all. No, <laughs> it's good. I, I kind of thought that Buddy Blevins had let y'all all know to give me the uh, the evil eye after I threw him under the bus last week. So glad to hear that wasn't that wasn't the case. I think he's forgiven me. He's a gracious man. So as Brian said, we're continuing our Lent series, and the way we've been describing Lent is like this. It's a desert experience that starves our appetites and reveals our deepest hunger. So a lot of fun there, right? For those of you who have a, a history in uh, sort of the more liturgical settings, certainly in Catholicism and the like, you know that Lent is a time when you fast, right? You uh, don't eat certain things or you cut off certain things in your life for, for a certain period of time, right? And that's all well and good because Lent is just 40 days, and you even get to take a break on Sundays. Uh, so who among us, you know, can't sacrifice something or go through something difficult that only lasts 40 days? You know, unless you're me and you're trying to stick to a low-carb diet. Uh, but some of you, some of you, it's not that big a deal for 40 days. So uh, 40 days at least seems doable. But the scary thing is that the Bible shows us that for some people, the desert can be the destination of our calling in ministry. The title of today's sermon is Hired as a Desert Hand, meaning that's the job you were hired to do. That for some people, the desert is a part of the job, and for others, the desert is the job, right? Uh, it's like this. So for most of us, El Paso, Texas is just a play we, place we stay in a motel on the way to where we're going, like when I helped my brother move to Colorado. But for some unfortunate souls who deeply deserve our pity... They are actually called to live in El Paso, Texas. <laughs> God help them. No. Apparently, Bree really likes uh, El Paso, Bree Simpson, and, and she didn't appreciate this little thing. So for those of you that like El Paso, I'm sorry, but it's terrible. <laughs> no, but they're in the desert, right? When we're in the desert in the way that we're talking about being in the desert and not just being in El Paso, but in that place of deprivation and loss and aloneness, there's actually something very powerful about a ministry that takes place there. And in fact, uh, it seems like some messages can only come from the desert, that the desert has a voice and certain things we can only hear from that voice of the desert. And that's different than maybe the voice and the sounds of the city. And we hear this kind of voice talked about in Isaiah 40. It says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged place is a plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And you, those of you who have ever driven through the desert, you just think about that flatness, Right? It's just flat, and you can see there's no place to hide. Everything is out in the open, right? And so there's something about this voice of the desert that we're talking about today. And the desert life um, has been a specific calling, certainly that's based on Scripture, but has been established over the history of, uh, of the church and even in the early days. In fact, at the end of the third century, Christianity, when it was made legal by, uh, by the Roman emperor, 
there, there was this sense in which it was suddenly kind of becoming popular to be a Christian, right? And suddenly, because of that, the churches, what unfortunately tends to happen sometimes is the churches start looking more like the world than the world starts looking like the churches. And so you had this group of people that decided that the way for them to really pursue God in a radical way was to move to the desert. Uh, Henry Nouwen writes about this in his book, The Way of the Heart. He says, if the world was no longer the enemy of the Christian church, then the Christian church had to become the enemy of the dark world. For these men and women, the flight to the desert was the way to escape attempting conformity to the world. And so these individuals who left to the cities to go to the deserts and they formed kind of this alternative Christian society at a time when, again, it wasn't a risk to be, in a, Christ, to be a Christian anymore. Uh, previous to that, people were being martyred, and it was a great sacrifice just to be a Christian. And so now um, this became a, a new way to really experience kind of that, that deep sacrifice for Christ. But saying that, they weren't just leaving to get away from people, right? Some of us probably think about that sometimes. Yeah, people are kind of a drag. I'd like to just go to the desert for a while. They were actually leaving for the sake of others, and their lifestyle became attractive, sort of like that city on a hill that Jesus talks about. Um, this is how Thomas Merton describes it. He says, the desert fathers saw the world as a shipwreck from which each single individual man had to swim for his life. These were men who believed that to let oneself drift along, passively accepting the tenets and values of what they knew as society was purely and simply disaster. They knew they were helpless to do any good for others as long as they floundered about in the wreckage. But once they got a foothold on solid ground, things were different. Then they had not only the power, but even the obligation to pull the whole world to safety after them. And so what you saw from these men and women that spent and lived, um, in many cases, a very monastic or hermetic life in the desert as they meditated on Scripture and as they prayed and just lived a lifestyle of prayer, people started coming out to them, right? In many cases, they were coming out to join them in that lifestyle. But there were also those who were just religious seekers who would come and, and seek the advice of these wise men and women and then carry that wisdom back with them to the city. And so in that way, it, it was a calling not just away from people, but away from the world for the sake of the people that still remained inside it. And so these are the, the things that we're talking about today of, of the call of the desert. And certainly not all of us have this call as a lifestyle in the desert. But for some of us, that is, in fact, the destination and the ministry. And to tell you more about that, I'd like to welcome to the stage our senior pastor, Raymond McDonald. Thank you very much. I'd like to say uh, in the beginning of this uh, church, uh, when you plant a church, it's, it's very much like a desert. It seems that way. And the few of us came and decided we'd move to Conroe or come to Conroe and and plan a church and make this thing happen. Um, and uh, one of those early people who came in more part of us uh, was Ben and Celeste Day. And they're here with us today visiting us. And I want to, a great part of growing our church and being there. And um, it's so great to see you here today. No, they're not moving back. I tried that. Um, but you're not going to get it because she has chickens in a garden. That's what, don't, don't know how that works, but uh, very good. Let's get going here. We've been choosing 
figures from the Bible as narratives. And so far, we've went New Testament with Jesus and certainly Old Testament uh, with uh, Elijah. Remember, we called him Kalijah, old Kalijah, uh, but his name was Elijah. And uh, then last week, I think we used uh, um, Moses. So today, we're going to return back to the New Testament. And we're going to use as our figure in the desert call that of John the Baptist. So if you're with me this morning, uh, you can turn with me to Matthew 3. We're going to go through Matthew 3 and, and look a, a little bit at John the Baptist. Now, before I talk a little bit about, about John the Baptist, I just want to say that I was raised as a Baptist. <clears throat> and so his very name became a big part of who I was as a, a young Christian. We did not dance because of John the Baptist is what I was told. And we'll be seeing some of that here in just a minute. But one of the things that blessed me much, Jesus said, there's no greater man than, than John the Baptist. And it's so strange to me because I, I still haven't found that thing that makes him so great that to me, I can find other figures in the Bible say, now that, that guy, he left churches all around the world. That guy there did miracles. John the Baptist wasn't doing miracles. And we don't we do see a faith that's called the Baptist, but that comes from the Anabaptist, which did more of baptism based on John, uh, what he did. But I say that because here was a man, as we're going to see, who was called to deprivation, who wasn't called to a glorious life, who ends up not uh, in any type of glory, but more in infamy. And we remember him gloriously because we're Christians. But if you had been John the Baptist, I don't think anyone here would have said, "Woo! I'm winning. This is winning. Uh, no, he was. When you asked John the Baptist how he's doing, he didn't say just living the dream. No, that wouldn't be John the Baptist. It was tough for him. So as we go today, I want us to understand that with our American ideologies of what it means to be successful in life and to walk out a call in Christ Jesus. And I'm not saying every call is a ministry and I'm not saying every ministry is a call. I'm just saying that we all have something on us that God's leading us to. And sometimes it just doesn't look real pretty. And you look around and you say, I must be a failure. I must be doing something wrong. And what we're trying to show today is that sometimes we're just called to difficult situations and difficult lives. Um, maybe you have a child uh, that, that has made your life difficult in a sense uh, that maybe they've had uh, something wrong with them or you, you've had to go through that. Maybe you have a a spouse that has had those things. Sometimes we go through difficult things, and it's not because we messed up. This is where we've been put, right? And so I just want to ask the Lord to come so this message comes out in the way it's supposed to. And I want us to think of us all having that prophetic call in the sense that God has called us to be a voice for him in this world, each one of us. And even as he speaks to us, he calls us to speak to others and to do that. And that's what being in the desert as a call is, is being out there for other folk, not just ourselves. So we ask you to come, Holy Spirit. I just clarify um, all that you want to say now. And let, um, let your word come alive in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, oh, looky here. Someone left a water behind me. That'll work. Yeah. Now, if you've got your water, you may drink with me now. This is right out of Alligator Creek. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Matthew 1, uh, Matthew 3, verse 1. 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And by the way, wilderness of Judea is wilderness, all right? In these days especially, it's very dry uh, and rocky and out there. And this is what he said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Uh, this is he who has spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Obviously, going back to that Isianic prophecy that we mentioned earlier, he is the one who's being called, that prophesied, that was prophesied of, going out into the wilderness. So no one here is going to argue the fact that John was called to the wilderness. It's right here in Isaiah, what he was supposed to do, right? So when he would be out there in the heat, he probably wasn't going, why did I end up getting the short end of the stick and having the desert experience? You know, why couldn't I have been in the big house? But let's go ahead and see what he's got here. First of all, he's saying repent for the kingdom of God's at hand. There's his message. Uh, that's a strong message for all of us when we understand repentance. And what repentance certainly means is that you repent of what you've done, saying what I'm doing is wrong. I'm turning around and I'm going right. I'm going to do the right thing. And, and it means, and I don't know how to do it without you. And for those of us who now know Jesus, when we repent, it's coming to him and saying, I know I've sinned and I've missed the mark in my life. I want to give you my life. Now, for some of us as Christians today, it means I got a drinking problem or other problems. And we think of sin that way. The idea and understanding of Israel at this time would have been this, this whole idea of a corporate sin. And their understanding of corporate sin was that they had sinned as a nation and had been taken out in to captivity and to Babylon, later in Persia, and before that, Assyria. And they had returned by now, obviously, for centuries. But the, the cruel hand of the Romans were on them, and they saw that their oppression was a result of their sin. We're in this real fix here with Rome owning us again because we have sinned. And they were saying to their priests, they were saying to uh, all them around, uh, all the, those who were in leadership, we we're doing something wrong or it should be right or, or we would would have not the oppression of Rome on us. And so they tried violent ways to throw Rome off of them. Uh, it worked, and did, but it really didn't work. It never really works violence in the long term. In this case, though, when they hear repentance, all these Jewish people are like, yes, I want to repent. I want to see the Messiah, the deliverer, the anointed one. All those words meaning the same thing. Come and rescue our nation. Oh, and by the way, I eat too much, so I'll confess that too. You understand this idea. When I think of, of repenting in our life, it's looking and saying, my whole life it needs repentance. I'm not just that I yelled at my kid today. There's something in my life that is out of control, and I need Jesus to take control. So here today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, I'm not trying to point at you and say you, ate, you, you stole cookies as a kid, so you're going to hell. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying Jesus has a life for you. It's better than the dream you have for your life. And then when we repent, it's saying, you take control of my life because I don't know how to do this. My finances, the way I love, the way I walk, I need you to do that. So can you capture that whole idea? This kingdom of heaven, by the way, is the same word you might see in other gospels, Roseanne, this kingdom of God, the cog. And so the kingdom of God, we say a lot in the vineyard, which just means this here, the rule and the influence of God in this world, not a place. The church isn't the kingdom of God. It's where we come and worship him, certainly. 
But the kingdom of God goes outside these doors. Anywhere he's moving and he's inspiring or he's uh, changing lives, we see a breaking in of the kingdom of God. When you pray for someone and, and, and you see them healed, there the kingdom of God is broken in. Right there when you got a chance to see it. And so when Jesus came, and again, I'm getting ahead of this story. When Jesus comes, the kingdom of God comes, and what does he do? He starts healing people. Eyes are healed. The lame walk. People are broken out of their, uh, uh, their captivity, and in and, and, and the darkness, light shines. These are all ideas and inspiration of the kingdom of God. I want you to capture that. But when Jesus was here, we saw that, but we don't see it every day because today we still see tears. We still see failure. We still see things of that nature. When Jesus returns, we will see the fullness of the kingdom of God, and that won't happen anymore. Now, that's called the here and not yet. Here, he's come already. We believe in healing. We believe in things. The not yet is it doesn't happen all the time. So when I pray for someone, I don't always see them healed. I don't believe I can just call that out and demand it, but we do walk in the authority of it, and we expect healing, and we expect him to break into our lives. So here comes the kingdom of God. What is the expectation that John has when he says, repent for the kingdom of God's hand. Y'all repent, and the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to straighten out Israel, and we're all going to be in a great place. That would be John the Baptist's idea of what he's selling out in the desert, his call. Do You got me. That was a lot real quick. You got that there? You got it there, Dr. Turner? All right, good. Here it is. A voice of that one calling for him. All right, let's go. Let's move on uh, and get a little bit further because uh, the understanding of what John had in this desert ministry was going to be pretty big. He was pretty excited. Uh, let's hear what happens for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Uh, prophet's clothes, by the way. By the way, if you run into Walter Bennett, occasionally he wears his camel jacket and a leather belt. Um, I don't know if he has locust breath. You'll have to check into that. But but for him, in these days, it would have been significant. And it's an ex those things are expensive, those uh, camel hair jackets. John must have been rich. No, you're getting the wrong idea. These were prophet's clothes, and it, it aligned him with the prophets of old. Why? Well, because prophets dressed this way because they lived off the land. Because it wasn't a very lucrative job being a prophet. It wasn't a very lucrative job being a minister, being the one who was called to say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So here's the job. You, would you like a job? Yeah, I'd like a job. Well, you're going to live in the desert, and you're going to have a message about uh, the kingdom of God coming. Oh, side note, it really doesn't work out the way you think it will. Uh, and by the way, you, there's no money involved with this. Would you like that job? Okay, I'll take that job. But understand this. Some of us have. Some of us have given our lives and have said, come and move in my life any way you want. And by the way, I'm not just talking about ministry. Sometimes it means pouring your life into somebody and walking with them and realizing that you give them this great message. God's told you to pray for them, walk with them, and you're going, they're going to get a job. This is going to be great. And guess what? They don't. And you feel like John a little bit. You get the idea of John. It's here. Listen to this. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. The whole region. Everyone was going out to this crazy guy, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Jordan River is dirtier than Alligator Creek right here. But they were coming to him. People were listening to this guy with a camel hair jacket and a leather belt and eating locusts. And they were coming out and giving their lives to repent. 
not to Jesus, to repent. Do you catch what I'm saying? This is wild success. He was the first rock star that we might get out. People were coming down to see this guy play, and he played well. But he lived in the desert. He had a hard message. See, a desert calling, though powerful, is very austere and lacking in basic comforts. Jesus said this here. You want to follow me? Understand this here. Desert, a fox has holes and birds have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. This call means that in this desert experience, when we're defining, understand it's a difficult experience by its definition. And it's very difficult in this kind of way. Now, I'm kind of explaining this one here. Sometimes we're called to things that just absolutely can be difficult. Now, I know we have some here who are going to be planting churches soon, and I'm scaring you half to death, and I don't want to. I'll never forget here when I first was involved and um, became very good friends with John Wimber, who was the founder of the vineyard. He was the father of the vineyard. Everyone wanted to be with John. I'd see him, and folks were just, they'd point at him and go, there he is. There he is right there. I'd see him. Grown pastors doing this. And he'd always wander in in his uh, white pants and Hawaiian shirt and um, sit down. He'd sit down next to me and go, how's it going, Raymond? I'm like, something looks pretty like it's going pretty good. He was a good friend. I'll never forget when he took me upstairs uh, in England in front of a bunch of pastors, put his arm around me, and told everyone what a wonderful guy I was and how the Lord was on me. Nothing ever felt that great in my life. This is the way it's supposed to be when you give your life to Jesus. Everyone loves you. But as I got on the elevator, Bobby and I were going down. The Lord said to me as I was going down, this is not the ministry I have for you. If I remove that favor from you, will you still serve me? And tears started because I didn't want that to go away. I said, yes, I will, Lord. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes it's just not all the way up there. Some of you, you'll be on TV every day. It's going to be beautiful. You're going to have a wonderful rock star type life. This is what Paul would say. The Apostle Paul, this guy here, he understood about ministry. He was a guy who gave his life to ministry. He was stoned. He had to escape out of baskets over walls. He does all these things. Uh, he even defies the apostles that are there to, to fight for the Gentiles. And in the end, they all kind of dislike him and disown him and don't really think he's an apostle and don't think he's all that. But yet, in his life, he goes through so much hardship for those who don't really even respect him. And in the end, folks didn't really think he was all that. Today we do, but they didn't then. This is what he writes in Philippians 4. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it's like to be in need, and I know what it's like to have plenty. And by the way, you can be in the desert and have plenty of money. Believe me. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So today I want us to capture this here. When you're going through difficult times, you may be there for the purpose, the very purpose that John the Baptist is in the desert, to be a witness of God's power. Right where you're at. Maybe you have cancer. Maybe you're going to the cancer origin. You're there. To be there and to be a witness to God in that desert is powerful. 
Maybe you're at, at a school that's not doing real well, a school that, that numbers are low. You're there with them, and you're walking in that desert with them. You are sitting in the same austerity they are. You're not getting a raise either. And it feels like failure. But guess what? God's got you there. And you can look for a job, but in that time, be that person. There's that John the Baptist calling out to those people that are there. And sometimes that's just the life you'll have. Mother Teresa never came out of that desert. Every day she slept next to the sick. Every day she saw the sick and those who were in need. I'm sure she didn't go and say, Lord, when did I get this, a new assignment? That wasn't where she was at. She wasn't a real happy person. She just served, and she gave her life to that. Let me read on. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Wow. He knows how to make friends. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? These are the leaders. These are the leaders of Israel. These are the ones who represent all that is holy and righteous. These are the ones who tell the people how to live the life of the kingdom of God. He calls them brood of vipers. The Pharisees and Sadducees were a little different because the Pharisees certainly believed in resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. So, old preacher joke. Now, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. Well, I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, there you go. Take it. Well, it's tough in the desert ministry. It's tough in the desert life. If you've got teenagers, it can feel like that desert sometimes, especially if you are a single parent, because you have to give the hard words and take the difficult stands that you don't want to. You don't get to be everyone's friend. You have to say, that doesn't work. That won't cut it. That's wrong. You have to be that one. Sometimes it's with your spouse who's going off the edge. And it's difficult. You're the bad cop, basically. John's the bad cop out in the desert. Who the heck wants to go to the desert anyhow? And then the ones who come out there, he's running them off, calling them brood of vipers. I like that. should be a band name, a Christian band name. Um, we're the brood of vipers. We sing about the love of Jesus. Uh, but... Sometimes we're giving the bad news. Now, I want to say this here because some of us really love to give the bad news. If you really love to give the bad news, that's not your job. If you get prophetic words that just really hammer people and you kind of like it, I don't think that's, that's you're, the wrong, you're in the wrong spot. It should hurt. I remember Brian and I meeting with a gentleman here uh, early on, and he had, uh, um, he had not left his wife. He stayed in the house, of course, and let her feed him. But he was having an affair with the woman next door, which was his friend. And um, as we sit and talked with him and said, man, this isn't cool. You know, like, you can't do this. Yeah, I know, I shouldn't, but I am. Well, the kind of brood of vipers conversation started up here, and um, meaning I, I came unglued. You're going to end up, the Lord's going to, mm, I was giving it to him. And Brian was going, what, what Raymond's really trying to say here? And so, no, no, that's not what I'm trying to I am saying what I want to say. You can't do that. Uh, 
he had just recently called to see if he could bring his mistress to church is what he had asked to do. And um, that, that precipitated the, the conversation. But, but my, my point was he moved away and uh, I didn't hear from him in a long time. We advised his wife to leave him because uh, he was unrepentant. Uh, what was there and she did and then uh, later he would end up uh, in a rehab out in California and she paid for his rehab even though she had remarried by then but he sent me a note and I still have it and he said Pastor Raymond I want to thank you for telling me what you told me because everything you said would happen happened to me my life ended up I went with that woman and I ended up in a home and I couldn't live with myself, so I turned on the gas oven, opened up propane tanks, tried to blow up my house. I couldn't get it to blow up, so I took a steak knife and started driving it into my chest. I was so addicted to crack that I didn't even know who, what my name was. And he said, they saved me, and I ended up in California in rehab, and I've come back to Jesus, and I'm serving him, and I wanted to thank you for being hard with me and telling me the truth. See, sometimes that's what you have to do. But be careful what you think is truth and what you have to say. There's clear-cut stuff that's there. I'm just trying to say it's hard in that place. It's hard to be that one because a desert calling requires us to make difficult stands that are necessary. They can leave us feeling lonely. They can leave us feeling lonely. But that's where we're at, and it's what it feels like, man. It feels like the desert. And when you're planning a church, I'm just using that as an example. I'm telling you, uh, you meet folks from a law of uh, walks of life. And I'll, I'll never get one guy saying to me, he said, well, I hear the church is in trouble. I said, well, you know, we're having some financial problems because you quit tithing. You said you'd tithe, you quit tithing. He was the top tither. And um, he said, well, the Bible says uh, that God likes a cheerful giver, and I'm not cheerful about it, so I quit giving. Um, <laughs> and he said, look. I'll give you a check right now if you'll show me your leaders and just fire every one of them and let me choose your leaders. And then, then I can write you this check. Uh, I said, that's not going to happen. I love you, and I'd love to sit down with you and show you these leaders and introduce you to them. I think you'll find that they're wonderful, capable leaders. Um, please don't do it like this. And he said, well, that's, you're not getting the check. So he took it, and I went home, and Teresa said, did you get the check? <laughs> I said, no, we didn't get that check. Um, and she cried because we were in a difficult place. I said, honey, we could not take that check. We can't allow that to happen because it sets a precedence of what our church would be like. And it wouldn't be a church that, that we were involved in anymore. You have to make difficult stands. And then sometimes you just feel like you're alone. And, um, you know, You've got your own stories where you've had to make your stand with your children, with, with your friends, maybe someone who lived in your home um, that you didn't want to live in your home. I don't know how that happens, but it always seems to happen to me. So there you go. I'm kidding. Thank you for all who've ever lived in my home. Thank you. I want to appreciate that. We did take the kitchen out of the back house, though. Uh, you can't live there now. So uh, there it but. Now I rejoice, Paul writes, in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I've become its servant 
by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Word and fullness also means the other side of the story. And that can be difficult. Guys, love is inexorably linked to suffering. You're going to love someone, they're going to hurt you. Because even if they're nice all their life, when they die, it's going to hurt. To get involved with people means it is difficult. But it's what the Lord's suffering is, and it means being real and walking with someone, being compassionate as you certainly can be in that. But let's just say I understand that lonely feeling, and so does Christ is there. Let me move forward. He goes on and says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Oh, and by the way, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Thank you. I'm here all, I'm here all night. Um, you know, again, this message, it makes him the most lovable guy in the desert. Uh, but the thing is, I want you to capture this. What gets us through desert ministries? And let me give you, this is like a desert ministry here. Let's say that I'm a young seminarian who graduates seminary, and I feel the Lord hires me away to go work at a church in a small cultural town that's dying. They're all up and down 45 and off the main highways. They're dying. And so I get called to a church there, and I go and I serve that church, knowing that that city's not growing, knowing that my pool of congregants is getting smaller, knowing they're dying even. Maybe I stay there so long that they all die and the town just shuts down and I just shut the doors on the church and I'm 50, 52 years old and I really have nowhere to go after that. Would you say that God would call someone to something like that? Would you think God would call someone to something like that? Yes, he would. And I'm telling you, I want us to know that he would. I know that as doctors, we don't have doctors in small towns. He would call you to a small town where you made less money, where your opportunities shrank to be somewhere because he loves people, not just in the big cities. It was so bad in the Methodist church that what they did was they came up with the five-year plan. And every five years, you had to leave your church so that the tenured pastors wouldn't stay in the big cities. They were dry, driven out to the hard scrabble frontier where they had to do their churching out there too. Because it was their way of saying, come on, man, let's get out in the desert. Let's do some things that are out there. You know, when he says, man, I'm baptizing you with water, but the one who comes after me is going to baptize with fire, the Holy Spirit. There's one greater than me. And how you get through this, a desert calling finds its purpose in glorifying Jesus, not in the messenger. This isn't about me today. It's not about me building my kingdom, my big church. And there's nothing wrong with a big church. There's nothing wrong with growing a church. We need to grow as a church, and we do that how? Because we go out and we are those who have the word of the kingdom of God to others. If you found Jesus Christ here in some way, he's moved. The Holy Spirit's moved in your life and changed your life. Share that with a friend. Why? Because your friend is in the same place you were when you didn't know Jesus or didn't have a church home. You remember what that was like. Well, you were Chris Christopherson walking out on the Sunday morning sidewalk. 
We share that because we love people. And you know what? When you share it, you might just make an enemy. You go to church. Yeah, I go to church. I do, man. I think it would be a great place for you to come. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Romans 8, 28, one of your favorite verses. Those who have been called according to his purpose. Get this, the calling is linked here with not good things. I mean, in all things God works for good means that something isn't looking too good. Get the idea of the encouragement. Called to his purposes, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Meaning this here, I will get the glory of Christ by pointing to Christ and walking in his glory. Jesus be famous. Jesus be famous. That's what we go through in that there. And when you start looking at him instead of looking at you and what hasn't happened, how things are turning out, you will begin to see his glory fill the room. I guarantee that. Let's move on. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard, I'm going to go to Matthew 14, heard the reports about Jesus. and He said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. This is why Miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of the Herodians, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. And by the way, understand John the Baptist again is making friends because he's telling Herod the king, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be marrying your brother's wife. He just he draws a hard line, this guy. He's got, you know, he's, he's, come on, come on. So you married your brother's wife, whatever. I mean, God can work. God loves everyone. Uh, get it. He had to draw the hard line. And I do get that. People come to me, man, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm cheating with another man's wife, but I'm lonely. And you're going, yeah, I get it. I see how that happened. Oh, by the way, it's, it's your wife. See how things change when it becomes personal. There's someone getting hurt in sin. Someone's getting hurt, you and another. And God's coming because he loves people. And when we miss the mark and it hurts someone else, on a large scale, small scale, these are things that we speak about. And John's having to speak this out. And so he says, that, hey, you can't marry your brother's wife because Herod's brother sure didn't like the fact that his wife had went over to his brother's house and started taking up life there, right? So what does Herod do? He, he jails him. He puts him in jail. But Herod kind of likes John. It's Herod's wife who's really the one who doesn't like Herod's wife, brother's wife kind of thing, doesn't like him. And so one day, Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she asked, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Hence, why Baptists don't dance. That's what I was told when I was a kid. That's what I was told. So I got out of square dancing for years. Now, I want you to hear what's going on here. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought 
in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. And John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now, earlier in the Bible, earlier in Matthew, John is in prison and he says to his disciples, go ask Jesus, are you the one coming? Because I'm in a jam, basically. Are you the one who is to come? And Jesus says, go back and tell them that people's eyes are getting healed, the lame are walking. Tell them all these things that are markers of the kingdom of God. And they come back and tell John, hey, this is what Jesus said. Miracles are happening. And meanwhile, John's like going, yeah, but I'm in prison. Do you think he hoped to get out? Do you think John thought, I got a desert calling, but in the end it's going to be sweet because I said the kingdom of God is near. He didn't know how near, right? He was beheaded. And dead is dead. Now, we know there's everlasting life, and those things are part of our life, but the point is he didn't want to die. He wouldn't have been asking. He wouldn't have been looking for that. A desert calling may not look like a success story, but it is. That's my point. It is. Just like we talked about the scenario of a young preacher taking a job out in a small town, we would all say that was a success. But if that was you, you were that young preacher and you had a small family, you wouldn't think that was a success. You'd be sitting there with no money. You'd be stuck in Crockett, Texas. That was for Walter. Which is a hard town. We, we have felt called to plant a church there, but it's a town that's, that's not growing. You see what I'm saying? And as pastors were often said, you need to go to big cities and go to big markets if you want to have a successful church. And I've always said our vision is to hit the small East Texas towns, plant churches. They just might not be that successful, but they need to hear the word of God. Meth is rampant in these places. These are difficult desert places to plant churches. Now, I'm taking this time. Yesterday, I, I went uh, with my son Samuel to Special Olympics. Sam competes in Special Olympics. And it was a uh, track and field day. And the first thing I did was went and bought a seat to sit on because my word to you from the Lord is don't sit on those bleachers too long without a seat. All right. He gave you a seat, but he wants you to have another seat. That's the Holy Spirit, and it was good. But I don't particularly like these kind of things. I, I, I'm an extrovert, but I get very introverted in these situations. I don't do well with pedagogical people. Uh, for you school teachers, God bless you. I just struggle in that environment. But I sat there and watched everyone get excited. And I looked down, and there was a race going on, but, and everyone was yelling, but I could not, I couldn't see anyone running. Well, they had pulled a young man up to a starting line about 20 yards, and he was in a, a wheelchair that was kind of made for him. He laid into the chair. His legs were no bigger than this, each leg. He was a teenager. Um, and he laid into his chair, and they dropped the flag. And everyone started cheering. But by all accounts, I saw nothing was happening. So I'm thinking, can't someone push the poor fellow and get him going? But that's against the rules. And little bit by little, an inch by inch, he began to cover 
those 20 yards. And after a while, I mesmerized by this race, his race. The only race this young man could ever run. And I just can't take my eyes off this inch by inch race. So I go down out of stands, and I go stand at the, at the line, at the finish line to watch and wait for him to cross that line. Because I am just, I'm, I'm caught in this. This is better than the Super Bowl. I'm not kidding you. Your, your heart's pounding. You're just, it's running through you. He's going to do it. And, and he got right to the line, and he just kind of stopped and started looking there. Everyone, no, everyone just kept cheering. And, and he kept inch by inch by inch till he finally crossed that line. And I just thought, that's the way the Father is doing with you. You are just inching, and you think you're failing. You think you're the biggest loser on the track, and by all accounts, this was the slowest competitor that day. But he was a winner, and he got a gold medal. And the Lord's calling you on today. Say, come on. It's a success. You are a success story. Just keep pushing with all that you've got to push. There's things about your life that make it very difficult. It may be addictions. It may be the fact that you didn't have a good background. It may be whatever. You're not so smart. Well, I see a lot of smart people whose race is over. You get it? It didn't end too well. You are a success story in the desert. You have children that maybe you go through difficult times with, as I've said. I know that we, Teresa and I, feel like losers every day. There's no way for us to get done every day what we need to get done. Just with our children, let alone our home and other things. It feels like losing, but it's not. It's inch by inch by inch. So I call you this morning into that and let you understand that it may not look like a success story, but it is as long as you stay in the race and you don't stop. and You don't give up on Jesus. You don't give up on God. Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe it just feels like you want to lay down and quit. That young man wanted to quit. But I think those last foot that he gave in that race is more than each one of us have given in the last year just to walk through this life. That's the love of the Father. And that great cloud of witnesses is cheering you on. And you know what? I'm cheering you on. And your brothers and sisters in this church are cheering you on. Amen? Would you stand with me now? I invite you to come, Holy Spirit, now. In this life that seems like a desert, this one that we walk every day that's difficult, this call is difficult. Because I will tell you, if you don't want difficulties, don't make friends. If you don't want difficulties, don't have children. Don't adopt children. If you don't want difficulties, do not do ministry. Don't volunteer for anything. But may I remind you of Peter as he walked on the water. When he took his eyes off Jesus and looked at the storm. Jesus gets him and puts him in a very quiet boat. 
which we think is great Christianity. And Jesus rebuked him and said, ye of little faith. I'm sorry. We walk on water. And it's slow go. And if you ever walked on water, you never want to get in the boat again. Let's look forward to the difficulties and the challenges. Come Holy Spirit today. For those whose marriages feel like this is a done thing, man. Inch by inch. Come on. Those whose life, your, your, your goals, your dreams, whatever's there, relationship with who is around you, inch by inch. I say, come Holy Spirit. Some of us have been in the desert crying out, repent for the kingdom of God is hand, and we believe it. We've been praying for the sick, and we've not seen it even in our own lives. And so we begin to just dip our head and feel like we've been beheaded. But your story is a success story. You may never see your grandchild come to know Jesus Christ and become a pastor. My grandmother didn't, but she prayed for me every day. And when she died, that was the catalyst that got me going back to Jesus and giving my life to him. You grandmothers and grandfathers praying don't understand the impact that you have on the lives around you. Inch by inch by inch. We're cheering. We're cheering. I invite the ministry team to come forward. And this morning as they come forward, I know I've taken some of your precious time. And next week we'll give it right back to you because I'm not preaching. <laughs> no, no, I think I am. I don't know. Um, what I want you to do today is all of us, as I just say, come Holy Spirit, give us the grace. Give us the grace. And I ask you to go read Hebrews 11 on your own. Please go do so. At the end of Hebrews 11, 32 says, they wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And some of our lives are made perfect by those who will live after us. By those who will live after us. So we say, come Holy Spirit. I invite you to come today. If you don't know Jesus, to give your life to Jesus today. Come. Just repent, man. We all do it. We all know it. Give your life to the one who has given his life for you, for your sins, for your life. And for those of us who are truly struggling in those deserts, let's come and get prayer as witnesses together. And let's say, come, Holy Spirit, baptize me with fire, I, I've had enough water. I've, I've dwelt on my sins enough here today. Repent for the... I've repented. Come fill me with power and anoint me. Leave that filthy residue, that sticky residue that lets things stick to me of character. Come anoint us in the call that you've given us. We just call on your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Bless them, Lord. Bless them, Father. As you come and have loved them, bless them, Jesus, as you've given them all with the forgiveness of life. And bless them, Holy Spirit, by coming and empowering them and baptizing them with fire. Now, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.